and welcome. You're listening to Diversity Matters, a podcast about raising awareness and education through thought-provoking discussion, opinions, experiences, and inspirational stories from the complex world of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Now, please welcome your host, Mike Seeley. Hello and welcome to Diversity Matters, where every voice is welcome and every story is celebrated. I'm your host, Mike Seeley, and I'm excited to explore and share the unique perspectives and experiences of innovative leaders, advocates and changemakers committed to creating a more diverse and inclusive world. This is the very first episode of Diversity Matters, and I am very excited to debut the show with my first and very special guest, Ashanti Bentul Jude. Ashanti is a trained coach, facilitator, keynote speaker, and DEI practitioner. She is also the founder and CEO of Good Soil Leaders, an inclusion, work culture, and leadership development company that takes a non political, cross cultural, intersectional approach to training, upskilling, and coaching stakeholders involved in the DEI work. She's, she also hosts her own well established podcast series, Confessions of a DEI. Pro, and we'll get into all of that later. But Ashanti, welcome and thank you for joining Diversity Matters. Thanks, Mike. I'm dead chuffed. I didn't realize I'd be on the first episode, so that's uh, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't think of a better guest to uh, help kick oh. this show off. Great. And let me just start because um, I actually first knew of you through. Um, a webinar that you were on, and along with my uh, boss at, at the time. And as I was listening to the webinar, I particularly kind of tuned into the things that you were talking about. And I came off this webinar really kind of excited. And I went back to my boss and said, we have to get Ashanti involved in helping to establish the DNI strategy within the company. But tell me, before we get into that, just go back a little bit and tell me how it how it all started, where did your career start, what did you study, um, and then how did we kind of get to, to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So I started out by studying law, so I always thought I wanted to be a barrister forever. And then I got there, and I thoroughly enjoyed learning, and I thoroughly enjoyed understanding how the reality of the law is applied. Um, because, of course, law and justice is not the same thing. So that was the first thing for me. And then I also did a lot of conflict resolution um, qualifications and trainings because it was closely linked when you're dealing with real human beings uh, who are having disputes, you need to kind of understand how to resolve conflict. And initially in those formative years, I was in the finance industry. So I went into finance dealing with disputes um, between financial institutions and their customers, whether they were small businesses, other businesses or individuals. And I did that for quite some time, actually. And it was during that time that I often, of course, found myself to be the only person of color, the only woman, the only under 25 on the floor in the banks. And that was a strange experience for yeah. me. Um, and it wasn't necessarily one that I could even sometimes share with some of my peers because they had gone into different industries, mostly creative industries. And I was in, obviously, quite a 
you know, it, it's a, it is a very rigid professional service, financial um, services. Yeah. But one of the, I think, turning points for me was that I, um, I, I decided to leave one job and go for another. And the pay rise was significant. And it was a significant title jump. Was this and still in the same industry? In financial services, okay. yes. And I should have known really from the outset, but I was young and naive and inexperienced. But in the interview, the director who was interviewing me said, I don't like managing people. Oh, wow. And, of course, that did not ring any bells for me. As I say, I was inexperienced and naive. I was offered the job, but it was an absolute nightmare experience. And a lot of the reasons why it was a nightmare experience was because, obviously, she didn't have any leadership or management experience, wasn't being developed in that way. She was kind of a fast-track go-getter on the technical side of what we did. And of course, I did know that some of the challenges that I experienced were related to the fact that my colleagues did not understand me, that in their normal lives and outside of sitting across from me at the desk, they'd never been around a black person, they'd never been around a young black woman, and they'd never been around a person like me. Uh, you know, so I didn't fit the stereotypes, I guess, um, that they were used to about young black women. And so I did endure quite a lot of, you know, discrimination, prejudice and microaggressions, mm. you know, being asked questions around, you know, whether my siblings and I had the same father. Oh, wow. Um, went to university. You know, it was very strange. I, I think they even thought I had this secret family somewhere, like I had children, and of course I did, and I still don't. But I was very difficult, or it was difficult for them to understand me and relate to me. And mm. I think that that was a significant factor in the overall experience in that particular workplace. So what I did was, is I finished a master's um, course in conflict resolution, and I decided to set up my own consultancy Great. and go back into corporate organizations and work with them on how they develop leaders in the business and how they specifically develop um, those from minority groups. So that's yeah. how we get to the current iteration yeah. of Good Soil Leaders. Excellent. And just quickly ask a question there, because one of the things you you spoken about was the fact that the people that you were working around had never worked with uh, people like yourself before, you know, black people, etc. Um, so they seem to be having a hard time of that. But how did that actually make you feel? What were your experiences when you went home at the end of the day? You know, were you feeling like really drained and exhausted as a result of that? How how, how was it for you? That's really interesting because I am, I I am, I think, um, quite resilient. And that's evident from, you know, the, the decisions I've made in the past I've taken to get to that point. You know, I was in my early 20s. I was still earning something like, I think I was 24, 25. I was earning for what, 10 years, 10, 15 years ago was very good money. I think I was on something like 50K. I'd never even imagined or fathomed that kind of salary at that age before. And I was an AVP. So I'm kind of a very go-getter and I thought I can get through this. But in reality, um, I I used to, honestly, I used to go to the bathroom during the day several times to just breathe mm. and be by myself. Um, I used to, I had terrible 
and I'm sure it's not too much information, but I started to develop terrible urinary infections, but it was stress and anxiety. Wow. So I was tense all of the time. I was on my P's and Q's. So I, you know, I was always early to work, but then suddenly I would get there extra early. I would be really prepared for meetings. I would try and think ahead of what the director could want from me, need from me. I would try to contribute just enough in meetings and not too much. I would try to anticipate my colleagues who were all much older than me. Um, what they might say. I had to get used to potentially being almost confronted in team meetings if they weren't happy about a particular piece of work or they felt I could do more. I was on guard 24-7 and my nervous system, of course, was my nerves were just completely frayed during yeah. that. And for such a young woman, I, it, you know, it wasn't healthy. And I, I think during the time I had internalized a lot of what was happening as a personal failure. Mm, interesting. I not good enough for this environment. You're clearly not as smart as you think you are, and you don't know what you're doing. And so for that whole during the situation, I blamed myself. I just thought, well, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. You don't belong here, yeah. which is ironic. You know, I felt like I just didn't belong, and eventually I did resign. Um, because it became too much yeah. for me from a mental perspective. It's carrying all of that pressure just to yeah. do your job, you know, and it just goes to show, I mean, this is a story I've heard, you know, similar stories many, many times of, you know, the pressure that, and, and back in those days, we would endure it. We would try and get on and do the, do the job, you yeah. know, and, Sometimes that was kind of being grateful because you have a job, knowing how yes. difficult it is to find a yes. new job. There's so yeah. many things going on, which is which is <laughs> interesting. And when you talk about that gratitude piece, you know, it's systemic. It's also cultural. I had other people in my family saying, look, you've managed to get this job. Um, hang on to it. In fact, when I decided to resign, my mum was, I knew she was worried yeah. and it wouldn't have been her preference for me to resign. She's like, you don't have a job to go to. Mm. And I just knew in myself I had reached the end of the line mentally. I was breaking under that kind of, 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 of pressure. So after you actually uh, resigned from your company, you then set up Good Soil Leaders. Just tell us a little bit about that and the goal of the company. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So Good Soil Leaders, we help organizations to simplify their approach to diversity, equity, and leadership, essentially. Um, there's a glut of content, obviously, available online, and there's a real crossover between social justice, activism, and the work that really organizations need to be doing when it comes to diversity, equity, and leadership. And what we do is provide clarity on what is actually relevant and what they as an organization need to do. But we also then, of course, um, help them become competent in actually being able to um, meet their goals and objectives as related to diversity, equity, and leadership. And I think that um, is really interesting because it, it truly does show that we have a real challenge, particularly in the corporate world, around the competency yeah. of managers and leaders particularly those who are managing people and yes. it's just so interesting in, in your your previous role where you 
right up front being told that from the manager, I don't like managing people. And it makes you wonder <laughs> why they're in the job. <laughs> so, yes. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So once you've got that set up, how did you kind of then start to get engaged with companies to, to be able to provide this uh, level of training and consultancy? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, initially, it really was through, I would just make direct contact with organisations and, um, you know, tell them how we could provide support. But the major one is basically a reflection of how you and I first met, which is curating panel discussions, going to events, and putting on events as well about various topics that fall under this umbrella and just bringing these stakeholders into a kind of no blame, no shame setting where they could say the wrong thing, they could ask questions, and then we would have an opportunity to provide clarity and then obviously go on to talk to them about how they could become more competent in the space. And how how was that actually received by companies? And the reason I ask the question is, We've now seen this really kind of take off, particularly since the death of George Floyd. This was all pre-George Floyd. So this must have been fairly new to companies who may have even been in denial about even having a a challenge or an issue. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I would say, and this is very true of the space in general, you know, I think definitely in the early years, it was mostly focused on gender. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, you know, that was a kind of middle of the road conversation, um, you know, that one could have with organizations. A lot of the time it was initiatives around how they could increase female representation, how they could, you know, develop, um, women in the business. And you're quite right. There was a, there wasn't always urgency. Okay. And, um, external risk to external reputation wasn't necessarily the top priority. And then, of course, yes, the murder of George Floyd changed a lot of that. I'd say pace, urgency, and obviously focus area. I mean, there are many studies out there that show that HR had um, deprioritized conversations around race and developing minority talent because they felt the conversation was too hard, too contentious. And so that's why most of the time when you saw diversity it was about women and of course that didn't actually include an intersectional lens for the most part it was around maybe white women middle class women educated middle class white women um the intersection around women with disabilities certainly not transgender inclusion or women of color for example those still were lagging behind in the types of work that organizations chose to invest in and were able to get buy-in for at that very senior leadership and board level. Yeah. Now we are fast approaching the third year since the death of George Floyd. Mm. And of course, at the time there was a lot of emotion um, around Mm. the business. There was a lot of activity on LinkedIn, for example, and a lot of companies were talking about it, mainly through pressure from colleagues now, if we kind of come three years down the road, are we still seeing that same level of in- engagement and activity around diversity and inclusion? So that that's a good question. 
what I would say is in our experience, look, there's definitely a lot of diversity fatigue and apathy mm-hmm. now. You know, with with the George Floyd period of time, it you know, it happened during the pandemic, it was on everybody's minds. It was on the news. Um, and, you know, since then, I would say there is an apathy and there is a fatigue around talking about diversity. And I think some of that is very much led by the fact that the reality of the work requires, you have to be resilient. You've got to um, be competent and you need the right support. And I don't think all of the organizations that pledged <laughs> put up a black square um, you know, and committed to certain things have necessarily engaged the right support. And I don't think their expectations were set correctly as to how long it would take, but also the actual work involved. And you know this very well. And so I think when it comes to diversity specifically and raising levels of representation in, in businesses, that is a long haul. You know, there are so many factors that influence what your organization is going to look like from a demographic point of view in three and five years time. And you need to be in it for the long haul. Now, when it comes to inclusion, I would say there is a little bit more activity within organizations around inclusion, um, you know, whether it's around neurodiversity, nowadays disability, etc. But I think on the diversity side, not so much. Yeah. And that's that's really interesting because I I think obviously since then it's how I got into my role as um, a DNI uh, director and I recognise that wow there is so much <laughs> to do in this space and I think during my interview one of the first things I mentioned was um, to my boss at the time was you know if you are expecting to see results in the first twelve months then this is not going to be the right role for me because this is going to take time and it's not just going to take time where you get to a conclusion at the end of that period this is something that now has to be embedded Uh. in our business you know every way we think about business we think about customers we think about new products and processes you have to have a dni lens on that in order for us to really kind of grow and develop Absolutely, Mike. And you took the words out of my mouth. I think one of the biggest issues is the fact that organizational design hasn't changed. Uh, and, and, and so therefore, you know, if you do have a DEI functional stakeholder within an organization, they're still working in a silo and they're regarded as a bit of an add-on. And really what, what needs to happen for greater, more sustainable change to happen within organizations is that it should be embedded in all of your main business functions, right? The approach mm. and the 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 um the lens should be embedded. Even if you don't have a stakeholder in every function, those functions should be aware of inclusive communication, inclusive design, whatever it is that your your business does. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that they're seeing is that it's still a bit of an add-on. You know, it's an mm-hmm. additional, if we remember um, <laughs> then we will think about this from an inclusive perspective. And and that obviously means that there's going to be longer periods of time without change. I mean, we only have to look back at the, the last couple of recession periods and what happens when organisations deprioritise their people. 
Because that's what we're talking about. When organizations deprioritize their people and the culture within their organization, they start you know, feeling the symptoms of that three to five years later, which is why it's really important that, you know, organizations start trying to do what they can do consistently Mm. over time, because otherwise we just end up in loops every five to 10 years where suddenly it's like there's a massive problem. We don't have representation. We don't have a, a diverse candidate pool. And when you look at the broader industry, and this is across all, there isn't even enough diversity to pull from Mm. and I think what we've also seen and I I think I read a report that that showed that over the last couple of years the DNI lead manager director etc is a role that has grown immensely but equally um, those people have come into the role have probably jumped out again after a couple of years through maybe lack of support lack of investment you know and Mm -hmm. and a lot I mean I think about myself when I kind of came into the space I know there was a lot to learn I'm not an expert in this in this space there is so much to learn in in every aspect of it which is why we have kind of great people like yourself kind of helping to guide us um in in the right direction now one of the things that you have done is you have an amazing podcast, Confessions of mm-hmm. a DE&I Pro. Um, talk a little bit about that for me and how it's kind of helping those people like myself who are in these positions to kind of lead and drive strategy within yeah. their respective companies. You know, to be honest, this has become one of the most rewarding parts of what we do, the most interesting and challenging parts of what we do. And, you know, thank you for asking the question, because I think, again, there is a lot of focus on what organizations are not doing on strategy without people realizing it's real human beings who are in the roles. And I actually believe that a key part of this ecosystem is the competency and approach of the actual stakeholder how they think, what skills they bring to the role. Um, that is really key. And so we have had the pleasure really of coaching and training and supporting DEI stakeholders within organizations with clarity, competency, and then strategy. Because a lot of the work, as you know, is around change management, influencing people, strategic thinking, relationship building, those things are quite crucial, never mind the subject matter knowledge that you think you might need to have. Um, and so that has been fascinating to see how people progress and develop in the role versus when they first start versus a year or two down the line. And also helping you know, them to begin to articulate the real value of what they do beyond the moral case, beyond social justice, beyond we just want to do the right thing. The reality is within organizations, you need to be able to articulate key business transformations. You also need to be able to articulate the financial value and or cost of the business not taking on board your suggestions. And, and, and you know, I was just having this conversation the other day. It is absolutely possible to go and find where businesses are hemorrhaging money because of poor culture because of not developing and retaining talent. That's essentially what we're talking about. And in some businesses, we're finding millions, Mm -hmm. millions being lost every year because they're not focusing 
on these key things. But it is up to the stakeholder to have that clarity and competence to be able to talk with, to be able to navigate some of the cynicism, skepticism, um, resistance that comes from boards, from senior leaders. And some of it, by the way, is well-founded because, Hmm. look, the moral case is not strong enough. If it were, we wouldn't be here. And so it's really important that stakeholders get much better at articulating of, of, you know, navigating these spaces. And quite honestly, when we see that light bulb come on, you find senior leaders give their buy-in. They give their buy-in and their next question is, how can I help or what do we need to do? So that has been, um, as I say, one of the most rewarding parts of what we do is actually helping the stakeholders, you know, beyond just talking to HR about what their strategy is. Let's start with who you've got in the roles first. And then we see massive transformation after that. Excellent. And tell me with the number of clients and the people who are, you know, you have been providing this kind of level of support and guidance. Are you seeing any particular common themes and challenges or is it quite a generic issue across the board? Okay, so that's a great question as well. I mean, some of the common challenges is um, lack of confidence. You know, a, a lot of individuals have gone into these roles because they're passionate about the topic. Um, but they're not confident necessarily or even experienced with, again, um, building relationships and influencing senior leaders and key people in businesses. And that's a key thing here. Yeah. If you've never done it before or you're not confident doing it, you're going to struggle in this role, essentially. Mm-hmm. Particularly if you're the only solo stakeholder, that means everyone's going to come to you and you're going to be pulled into meetings that maybe in your prior roles you would never have been in that room essentially. You just wouldn't have been in the room. And so that's, I think, a common challenge. The second thing is understanding that, you know, um, you need to be the one. I always say, I mean, you don't want to be a politician, but you've got to be prepared to do the groundwork that politicians have to do to get people on their side to, and, and I'm not just talking about any old politician, and I'm talking about to be the prime minister or president, you've got to do that canvassing, that campaigning, that grassroots proactive reach out to people in and outside the business to be able to leverage resources, leverage, you know, and access things that you need to, um, you know, execute your role. And I think it takes uh, some by surprise, the amount of manual hard work that one has to do. And especially, again, you could have come from a role where, you know, trust was a given. And now you're in this role because of the nature of the role, people just don't want to talk to you or they don't necessarily value your expertise and what you can offer to them or their department or their team. And so there's a lot of putting aside of ego and, and, and that's hard, right? And also you have to be comfortable with letting other people think that the great ideas maybe that you've come up with are theirs. Again, we're talking about ego, but you've, yeah. you've got to get rid. I know you're laughing there. You have to get really good at that. You have to be okay with that. Um, and so those I'd say are some of the common challenges at the start, definitely in the first year Mm. for a lot of DEI stakeholders. And then second to that is about understanding change management and business transformation. 
You know, again, you, you know, you have to understand the context within which your business is operating. Yeah. You can't just send around some resources on awareness days and think that that is going to make a difference or matter to your colleagues. Yeah. You have to meet them where they are and understand how to almost speak multiple languages so that you can speak their language and pull out the things that are going to be relevant for them. So it's you've got to be a bit of a chameleon in this piece and you've got to be very resilient. So I'd say those are some of the main challenges that we see um, you know, DEI stakeholders experience. And of course, from the outside, people think this is about going to events. It's about reading books. It's about knowing and understanding the latest you know, terms and keywords. And in actual fact, most of your job is not spent doing that on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, no, that's, that's really um, an interesting point because I think this role is one of continual learning. Um, yes, the piece about the relationships is absolutely key, yeah. but I think understanding the, the business that you're in as well, um, if you don't understand that, then you are, you are going to struggle. So yes. tell me, somebody who maybe they're working in an organization, the opportunity to kind of lead the DNI strategy comes up. They have that kind of passion yeah. and they go for it. Tell me what two or three pieces of advice would you give somebody coming into it? Because I always kind of Ooh. think these jobs might be great, but if you ain't got the right mindset, don't, don't go into yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've you've hit the nail and I'm only going to go back to the framework. First of all, you need to have clarity on what diversity, equity and inclusion actually means in a commercial workplace. Not what social media is telling you, because it's not the same as social justice. It really isn't. And it's not the same as activism. So you need to understand what diversity, equity, and inclusion means in the workplace. Understand the institutional elements, the interpersonal elements, and the internalized elements. And I was having a brilliant conversation with one of our, um, our, our faculty recently. And, you know, we talked a lot about understanding policies, how they're made who they were made for. You know, th- there's these different elements to, to, to stewarding diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. The second thing you need to understand is um, how people function in, you know, in the workplace. And, and this is quite key because, quite frankly, the topic itself can be quite threatening and intimidating. And as human beings, neurologically, we respond to threats in different ways. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to understand that what you are often experiencing or the, the, the feedback you're getting is merely a reflection of fear and people feeling threatened in the workplace. And some people obviously will freeze, some people will fawn, some people will fight, and some people will take flight. Um, and so it's really important to understand that from the get-go, that it's usually not about you. Mm. It is a fear and threat response. And unfortunately, as DEI stakeholders, you're not only navigating your own, (laughs) you're also navigating everybody else's when you are operating within your role. And then the third thing I think that comes up very much is to remain open, curious and be a learner Mm -hmm. because this this space moves so quickly. And it's not possible, even if you are from a minority group yourself and have some lived experience of discrimination or prejudice, it's impossible to have a full grasp on the yep. full human experience 
Honestly, it, it really, really is. So try to go beyond and try to operate beyond your own lived experiences. That's really important and remain open and curious to the fact that there's always a nuance. There's always something new that we might need to hold space for when we're doing um, the work. And then the fourth thing I'd say is absolutely go out there and find good training, great coaching and a network you can rely on, not an echo chamber of people who only think one way about the work that we do. You really want to be in networks where there is a variety of perspectives, even ones that you really disagree with, because what that does is it sharpens your thinking. It sharpens your reasoning. It sharpens your approach. And I think that is something that's so, so important. You want to be in spaces where you really disagree, maybe instinctively, viscerally, with maybe an approach or a perspective. But it will sharpen you and challenge you to make sure that, you know, we aren't obviously projecting bias. We aren't projecting, um, you know, types of prejudices in the way we do this work. Yeah, that's amazing. That's good, amazing uh, tips and advice for anybody who is is thinking about moving into this space. Um, just tell me now, with yourself and and Good Soil leaders, you know you've probably built up a client base. Do you operate solely in the UK, or are you operating in different countries around the world? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I have the pleasure of working with people all over the world, which is fun. And and one of the, the best pieces of work that I've done recently is around DEI around the world. How does it actually apply in different regions? Because as you know, you, we have to take a global approach these days. If you've got remote and hybrid workforces, you really are missing the mark if you're only executing this work from a Eurocentric approach or even from a North American approach that, you know, we have to kind of move away from that. And so um, it's been a pleasure to work with organizations who have teams located all over the world where there are completely different pressing issues mm-hmm. as related to diversity and inclusion. Some of, And most of the time, to be honest, outside of North America, and Europe, for example, race is not always the biggest factor. In fact, it's yeah. quite far down on the list, right? There's lots of other things like social mobility, neurodiversity, disability, um, and so many interesting nuances. I mean, I was leading a session in Turkey, and you know, they talked about some of the stigma that, that those who identify as women who wear the headscarf experience in the recruitment process. That is what's relevant to them in Turkey, right? Yeah. It's those nuances um, versus in other countries, it could be accents. It could be stigma around people who come from certain minority tribes. They may all be of the same race, but there's nuances within that. So um, that has been really fascinating for us in terms of working with teams around the world because it gives you such a global perspective on Mm. what what we need to be doing in the workplace. Excellent. And tell me, what is the the longer term plan for yourself and, and the company? Where do you see, you know, if you look two or three, three years down the road, where do you hope to be or aspire to be as a company? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the first thing is, we, you know, for me, it's very important that we keep building and maintaining a reputation as a transparent and competent um, partner 
to corporate organizations when it comes to inclusion and um, leadership development. You know, those are really key values for me. That's why I talk a lot about clarity and competency. Um, and, and that's so our reputation for me in three years time, I need to maintain that in the market. But secondly, I want us to be known to actually match organizations with the most competent experts, mm. you know, that are out there that can actually help them move the needle, go beyond just ticking a box. And I know there's a lot of stigma around ticking the box and there are times where that's necessary. But even within that, I think we want to be the leaders that people come to, to think they have got the right people that can actually, that can actually help us. And I think the last thing really is about legacy. You know, I I think that's why training and supporting DEI stakeholders, that's where the legacy really sits. Right. You know, they will go on to move on to other organizations and continue to have an impact in those organizations. So we would love to do our part when it comes to having an impact on the overall credibility of diversity, equity and inclusion. The overall value that these experts have within organizations, we want to do our part to contribute to that. Excellent. And can you ever see a time where companies in particular will will get to a place where they have a truly inclusive culture where everybody has the opportunity to succeed and, you know, and be successful? No, I think, I hope (laughs) we will get to a time. And and the reason why I say it's a no is because obviously human, the human identity and experience Mm -hmm. is always shifting. There's always going to be something, but I think, I hope we get to a time where organizations have accepted that the need to have an inclusive workforce in an environment is non-negotiable. And therefore, with that baseline in mind, they're able to adapt to whatever future generations bring into the workplace, essentially. Um, I think it's hopefully we can, with time, uh, you know, move beyond the resistance, I think, that some organizations have to prioritizing this. Excellent. Um, Ashanti, as we come to the the end of the show, are there any kind of final comments that you'd like to share? Thank you for having me on the podcast. Congratulations for even starting one. I truly do um, believe that there's a lot of value, as you know, that you can add in this space. And so, um, please keep doing keep doing this work. Great, thank you very much. Well, listen, thank you for your time on the show, and mm-hmm. of course, I wish you every success in the work that thank you're actually you. doing. Um, at our company, we've learned. And we continue to learn from you um, a a great deal there. Look, if there's anybody out there kind of listening who may be uh, a stakeholder, you know, you must get in touch with um, Ashanti or even listen to uh, the podcast to get amazing um, advice and tips and and guidance. Um, Once again, thanks very much for for joining the show and being the first guest, of course. (laughs) Thank you very much. Always. Take care. Bye for now. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Diversity Matters. If you liked what you heard, then be sure to hit like and subscribe. And we'll see you next time.